thought maybe we can talk a little bit about, about its spring and, and, and the, the doors open here. Okay. All right. So, so we're going to uh, just gab at first? Just, just real quick just and then I'll little, go. Just a little just gab? real quick. <laughs> a gib. So, uh, a gabbit. So we're here at Gephards. It's uh, yes. It's what? It's the beginning of May. It's May second. May second. May it's day. Three yesterday. days before Cinco de Mayo. So, ah. Senora. Yes, see. All right. Okay. And um, and and, and Gephards porch, they have the door open. Yes. So we've got the outside inside. It's very nice. It's really nice. It's a beautiful day. I'm waiting for all the buses to go by. Well, it's going to happen. And the sirens. Uh huh. It always happens. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, we're across the street from the mortuary, so... Down the street from Papaya. We don't know who's going to show up at the mortuary. You never know, <laughs> but they're very quiet. <laughs> and so here we are at Gephardt's. And finally, the Democrats are in charge of the New York State Legislature. Woohoo! And the 2019 New York State budget has been finalized. All right. All right, everybody out there, guess how big this year's budget is. Go on. Put a number in your head, hmm. and we'll get back to that whopping number later Thinking. in this BCR episode. This is Bar Crawl Radio number 40, recording at Gephard's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street. BCR is now at most of the places you get your podcasts. And check out our new website at pippa.com. That's P-I-P-P-A dot com. And our old website at barcrawlradio.com. Subscribe and let us know what you think of our programming. With us today is a man who works tirelessly to make sure that our tax dollars are spent fairly. Michael Kink of Strong Economy for All Coalition has been pushing the New Hope People's Budget in Albany. And we'll be asking Michael about how well they did and how they did it, what was got, what was not, who were the winners, who were the losers, and that sounds like a show, doesn't it? Sounds good to me. So, here we go. The band just kept walking down the street. Yeah, it was so cool, right? So, BCR producer Alina Larson. That was Wade Larson. Ripka's band, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Wade Ripka. That's right. right. That's Wade Ripka. Uh, um, BCR producer Alina Larson met Michael King early in March in Albany during this year's state budget talks. Alina was lobbying with the People's Platform, part of New York True Blue Reform Group, and she attended Mr. King's talk at a coalition of grassroots groups. According to Alina, Michael King's overall point can be summed up in a single FDR quote. Taxes shall be levied according to the ability to pay. That is the only American principle. End quote. Strong Economy for All is a coalition of healthcare and teachers' unions and other community activist groups working for a moral budget. Michael Kink, the coalition's executive director, is a dedicated public interest attorney. For almost 20 years, Mr. Kink was the Legislative Affairs Counsel for Housing Works, focusing on HIV-AIDS, housing, civil and LGBT rights, and children's health care issues. Early on, he participated in civil disobedience activities to raise awareness of the AIDS epidemic. Welcome, Michael Kink, and tell us, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a seltzer with lime, and I'm enjoying it on a bright, sunny day. Yeah, so Gephardt's yeah. has a really good seltzer and lime. <laughs> so they do best. something with the lime. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, it's know. It's I don't know what it is. It's very fresh. I, I'm, I'm trying their new, um, actually, I tried both. The main IPA, and they have a twin fork, and I tasted both of them, uh, and I'm drinking the twin fork. And I am tasting yeah. 
or drinking rather, Tito's and Tonic. Alina, what are you drinking? Oh, you got the twin forks too. You got the large one. Oh God, I went for the small one. I don't want to get too uh, three too blottoed here. Yeah. So, 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 Mike, how large is this year's New York State budget? Uh, it's over seven hundred seventy-five billion dollars at this point. Wow. Wow. Um, That's more than my salary. New York <laughs> just uh, barely has one of the bigger state budgets in the country. California's is a little bit bigger than ours. Do you uh, know what it is? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, Maybe we Google that while we're talking to each other and figure it out. Okay, all right. So is the New York state budget different in any other ways from other large budgets or other state budgets? Well, most states spend the bulk of their money on education and health care and then other things. Uh, New York is slightly different in that our health care system is absolutely the best in the country in terms of the way we utilize public resources to deliver care. It's still inefficient. There's still a bunch of people that can't afford all the health care they need. But we have woven together Medicaid, Medicare, the ACA expansion in a way that costs a fair amount but is a really, really smart use of public resources. We also... Um, are the only state in the country where counties pay a share of the Medicaid program. In every other state, it's a state-federal program. Okay. And so on the one hand, that, you know, allows us to spend a little bit more. On the other other hand, uh, it has contributed to the property tax crisis that is a raging populist prairie fire all over the state and is utterly meaningless on the Upper West Side because, you know, in New York City, property taxes don't really matter. They rent or, you know, income taxes are more important in New York City for financing city government. That's pretty wonky and obscure. But, you know, education and health care, we spend a fair amount on any poverty and homelessness, nowhere near what we need to spend. And I think that was one of the real failures of this year's budget. Despite spending $175 billion, we still have more homeless New Yorkers than we've ever had before, over 88,000, closing in on 100,000 statewide. And we are not providing the safe, affordable housing for homeless people, the supportive services that we need to. Uh, so, you know, we can talk about wins and losses. We can talk about strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, if you're looking at the state budget from a fairness perspective, very low income and homeless people got nowhere near what they needed. I think it's always the case, though, isn't it? With the low income and, you know, I mean, they're, they're at the bottom of the... Right, since the beginning of time. Yes. It's very hard to build political power for people that have absolutely no resources. That was right. part of the amazing work that Housing Works did over the years, working with you know the most marginalized people, HIV positive, homeless, mentally ill, chemically dependent, transgender, right? You know, sort of folks that are absolutely at the margins, fighting in Albany to win housing, supportive services, health care. You know, I kind of, I was a legal aid lawyer in Harlem for five years and then went, it jumped into Housing Works and learned how to make a difference in Albany with the people whose lives depended on that. So, you know, uh, understanding how you can build power for people that have absolutely nothing helped me kind of scale that to broader areas where, you know, people that need public schools, people that need health care, people that want a functioning democracy starts to get more like the majority of the population. Right. 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 And people who may have influence. So we want to focus on the budget decisions and the outcomes, but we also want to learn about the process of creating a budget. 
uh, and the difficulties that are faced in influencing the direction of a massive New York State budget towards positive social change. So, but first, but first, yeah. before that, we want to know, how did you get into this line of work? And uh, when did you first know that you were uh, going to be someone who worked in these fields of social and economic justice? Ah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I was a little kid on the south side of Chicago, and, you know, my dad was a neighborhood lawyer, and my mom was a journalist, and I feel like I'm kind of half of each of them in my work. Yeah. My mom what also... What kind of journalism? Uh, she uh, had done college journalism in college, and she uh, much of her career focused on kind of local county and state government kind of reform type stuff. She was in the League of Women Voters. She was in prison reform stuff. So do you think she influenced you? Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. She's yes. my mom. Yeah, of course right. she was a badass, you know, kind of researcher and writer and organizer. That's great. Um, and they were both involved in kind of independent non-machine politics in Chicago. Like, I knocked on doors on the south side for Ab Mikva when he was running against the Daily Machine when I was like six years old, you know? Get out. Um, and I also... It's a good way to get the doors open. Get yeah, a six-year-old. totally. Kids will talk to you. And yeah. I, I had lit. I had a rap, you know? I was like, you Do know... you remember it? Yeah. Oh, God. That was a while ago. Was a while ago. I, don't, I cannot remember the rap. I'm sure it was just sure it was like cute. very simple, but somebody, you know? It was also a neighborhood that like was a white neighborhood, and then it was kind of a mixed neighborhood, and then it was an all-black neighborhood. So I saw, um, you know, white folks and black folks living together. I saw racism. I saw brutal violence. Like it was a neighborhood over from where Dr. King came when he came north to Chicago wow. and was driven out of town. He yeah. said people from Mississippi should come to Chicago to learn how to hate. You know, oh. that was my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I you know, saw super strong matrilineal, uh, multi-generation, very poor black families, saw how strong and beautiful and like whole they were. And like, so later in my career when Clinton was trash talking welfare and shit like that, I was like, no, that's not my deal, right? So I, I got pointed We're in talking about direction. Bill, right? Bill there. Clinton, yeah. yeah. Hillary was a little better. Yeah. Um, so, but you were know, also into civil disobedience too. Totally right. And I did think, you get into trouble? Well, you know, it wasn't trouble, trouble. I, I think that you know, Dr. King was a hero of mine from when I was a little kid, just from the neighborhood. You know, uh, Fred Hampton from the Black Neighborhood, from the Black Panthers, was organizing white and black people together in those times. Appalachians from the South and stuff. I later came to to read about that. So, uh, you know, racial justice, economic justice, uh, some focus on government, you know, the, the, as a way to address these things that it mattered who was in government and what government did. That was an orientation when I was a little kid. And, you know, my dad was a lawyer, so I was kind of interested in law. I knew that was the kind of work I wanted to do. I came east for college. I came to New York for law school. I worked for Legal Aid in Harlem for five years. Um, and what was your intention? All along. Yeah, it was. I, I haven't really been able been deviated from that, and I, I've always been able to find a decent job where I got paid. I had some benefits. Like, you know, when I worked for Legal Aid, I had a union job. I had a rent-stabilized apartment. You know, I could pay my student loans, which Yay, were not back-breaking. Totally. All these kind of public programs that benefit regular people that have been chopped down or eliminated over the years really gave me a shot at the kind of life I've had. But, right. you know, I've tried to you know, do public service my whole career, and I've been successful at doing that. Yeah, it, it must be quite 
um, I don't know, enlivening or uh, it's a good feel to be doing that kind of work. We're teachers. And there's yeah. a good feel to that, too. I just got a, a text from my uh, my boss saying, can I do a conference tomorrow? So I had to just say yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're teachers. So so we, um, I'd love to hear more about housing works because that I don't know enough about it. But here we're to talk about Strong Economy for yeah, All yeah, yeah. Coalition. It was formed in 2011, so it's not been around that long. What are its basic goals? Uh, have those goals been reached? Maybe also, how did it get started? Sure. Uh, well... In 2011, uh, after Governor Cuomo was elected, and uh, immediately afterwards, he started making noises like he was going to be the Scott Walker of the East, and he was going to oh, attack God. the unions and slash the pensions, yeah. right? Some of the unions and community organizers that had helped him get elected <clears throat> were kind of alarmed and realized that they needed a, a kind of a fighting force that would take him on in a way that was smart, you know, that would create pressure, that would fight for fairness, um, and that also would lift up the narrative of economic inequality that now is in full explosive spring, but at that point was just kind of bubbling under, post-financial crisis, pre-Occupy Wall Street. Uh, Michael Mulgrew from the Teachers Union, uh, George Gresham from 1199, John Kest, who uh, used to lead the New York ACORN uh, and now known as New York Communities for Change, came together. Um, I had worked for the Senate Democrats the last time they were in charge and was looking for a new position. And I had done, you know, organizing, advocacy, legislation, public communication, direct action, civil disobedience. They were looking for people that knew that how to do that kind of set of things. So uh, it was a, a pretty good fit. And so um, there So are, was this your idea? No, it was pretty much, I think, John Kest's idea. Uh, and uh, he worked with Michael Mulgrew and George Gresham to get it off the ground. A number of other labor unions joined... Uh, uh, CWA, uh, 32BJ, RWDSU, the city and state, you know, Central Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and then a bunch of community organizing groups, New York Communities for Change, Make the Road New York, uh, Citizen Action, the Alliance for Quality Education. So you've got a bunch of base-building community groups all over the city, all over the state. You've got some of the most engaged unions in the state. And, you know, they wanted to have fairer taxes and budgets, they wanted to have better wages and more jobs, and they wanted to reduce the power of big money in politics and expand democracy. So, all, so, all, so this is a coalition of many, many groups. Many are um, teachers' unions. Yep, um, city and state, both so, UFT and NYSET. Uh, right. So all those heads of the different unions are on the board, or how active are they? actively are they involved? They're, they provide regular guidance, and you know our work has gotten smaller and bigger depending on campaigns and circumstances. You know, we have run big million-dollar community organizing campaigns. We have run smaller people-powered, you know, uh, uh, movement-type campaigns. We did a lot of the work prior to and during Occupy Wall Street, right? We ran a 25,000-person march from City Hall to Wall Street uh, in the spring of 2011. Uh, May 12th was the big march. And so that was one of your big, your first big thing. It was, and we, and we trained hundreds of people in direct action, street protests, 
many of the people we trained went on to be first day occupiers at Occupy Wall Street. So when Occupy Wall Street was happening and we were trying to get Cuomo to do the millionaire's tax, we swung in there, we helped Occupy expand around the state, we helped keep them in the park, we helped organize the big labor march that you know kind of solidified their presence in Zuccotti. Uh, we, I remember that. That was an amazing scene. It was an amazing time. And there have been recent you know, journalistic stories and a number of academic pieces about mm-hmm. how Occupy Wall Street created so many things. Caused so, the, the, the shallow talk is, oh, it never really amounted to anything. Right? Yeah. It amounted to the fight for 15, the fast food worker organizing and $15 minimum wage. It amounted to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Many of the organizers of color that were in the park at Zuccotti went on to help found the, and, and ground the movement for black lives. Right, so many of the things that are transforming our country, I would argue many parts of the resistance, the indivisible movement, the sort of distributed network, do it for yourself, but there's tools anybody can use. You know, there's some hardcore organizing, there's some anarchism, some like let it all go out there and let people run with it kind of stuff. The kinds of things that folks brought to the park have really helped change the country. And I, 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 admittedly, those are the kinds of tools that we try to bring to bear on the state budget, right? Mm-hmm. Albany is very hidebound. There's a lot of, you know, sort of power structures, people with money, people with influence. And if you're trying to break those kinds of log jams, it really takes people power. You know, ultimately, it's very hard, even for unions, to get the kind of cash that's necessary to change the game up there. And that's why the resistance, the people power, groups like True Blue, folks like Empire State Indivisible have, have really, really made a big difference in this year's budget after those elections. You know, there's a lot more to talk about, but um, I, I hope that's a <laughs> no, somewhat no, succinct absolutely, a, a answer absolutely. to the question. But I, I want to say your website states that your coalition wants, quote, the 2019 legislative session to focus on fighting poverty and racism reducing inequality, strengthening our democracy, protecting our environment, fixing our state and local tax structure, and creating a bottom-up economic development model for the state. That's a whole lot of asks. Yeah, and Has with it the, been accomplished? You know, the teachers in the house, I, I, I have not been an actual teacher. I, you know, it's kind of like a D level in terms of what we actually got. I think that we have started to change the narrative and started to change what's possible. You've pu- you're pushing. Yeah. You know, part of this is about taxes and fairness, right? Right. We have uh, a millionaire's tax, right? We have a tax where individuals that make a million dollars a year and couples that make $2 million a year pay a slightly higher tax rate than everybody else. We have progressive taxes. This year, we were fighting for an ultra-millionaire's tax, right? If you add some new brackets at $5 million a year, and ten million a year, and a hundred million. You would think that would be just kind of obvious, obvious, right? And that's where all the wealth and the income has been going, right? If you want, and how much money do you actually need? Well, I mean, to be even <laughs> to be really wealthy and live really, really well, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brian Lehrer had a caller with our, you know, our pal Pe- Morris Pearl from the Patriotic Millionaires went on Brian Lehrer to talk about their support for the ultra millionaires tax. A woman actually called in and said their income was a million dollars a year and they felt like they were struggling. 
a million dollars a year. Ouch, and, and poor you thing. know the private school they have fees a family of 400 and the vacation so. homes and the <laughs> you know travel and you know wait it, a minute the tears are falling on my microphone so you know um it is very very hard to get even all democratic albany to tax the rich right Dem- all democratic albany has killed it on progressive policy issues right reproductive health act environmental issues right voting rights there were huge landmark things right the uh the uh, uh the the you know protecting the the uh child victims act right the you know kids that have been uh, uh, attacked um legislation that had been bottled up for decades passed in waves at the beginning of the session right. and then we got to the budget right. where you're actually contesting power you're actually asking rich people to give some of their money to right. pay for things that everybody needs, right? And all of a sudden, it got a lot harder, right? This is my money. We, we proposed the Pieta Terra tax. I don't know if you guys saw the conversation, no, no, right? So, you're going into the questions I was going to ask you anyway, so, so continue. You know, so Ken Griffin, right, the New York, uh, the, the Chicago hedge fund manager, right? He, he was the, the third, uh, the the the. I don't know if he's second or third. He was the sec. He was the the number two or number three hedge fund earner last year. He made a billion five in one year, right? So he bought a two hundred thirty eight million dollar apartment in one of the new skyscrapers on Park Avenue, as his like fifth house, right? And, and, and two hundred thirty eight million dollars, right? And so we've been proposing for some time, and we started to gain traction this year because of freaking Ken Griffin. You know, were you we the sh- ones that introduced that idea of the Peter Terra tax? Eight years ago, us and the Fiscal Policy Institute, Michael Mulgrew, the Teachers Union president, right? That, that that was the one of the first things you know that we proposed. Here's a thing you can do: people that have two or three or five or six homes, right? We were talking about only a tax on over five million dollars in value, right? So if you have a Peter Terra that's worth four and a half million dollars, we're not even going to tax you, right? Only five, right? So. That it's good to know, honey. We, we have to keep it under we'll four We'll keep and it half under million. the four. The four so, M. so we proposed that tax. We proposed to raise a billion and a half dollars for the subways, to fix the freaking subways, right? Property in New York has value because there's mass transit, there's police, there's a you know sound it's public infrastructure, city. right? So um, it began to gain ground, right? It, everyone was in favor of it. You know, Cuomo said, of course I'm in favor of it. It's my idea, even though it wasn't really his idea. Yeah. It was Brad Hoyman's idea. And then all of a sudden, Rebney, the real estate board of New York, decided that they needed to stop it. And they stopped it. Mm. They hired, you know, the lobbyists that's closest to Speaker Hasty. They hired lobbyists that were close to Cuomo. They went around to Albany were and said afraid? it was too complicated. Were they afraid people were going to stop buying apartments? They in were New York afraid, City? right? Right. Wow. It doesn't stop. That's so silly. You know, Paris has one. Vancouver has one. Hong Kong has one. Right. None of those cities have any trouble selling beautiful elite, you know, uh, luxury apartments and to charging a tax people. on it. Totally. Right. It's like their accountants would have paid it. None of these people would have had any changes in their lives one bit from this Pieta Terra tax, but. Redney was able to scare Albany into blocking that tax. We got a mansion tax, right? We got a mansion tax, which is one of the things we've been fighting for for years. We're like, you know, if you have uh, on a transaction of homes over $3 million a year, there should be a slightly higher sales tax, right? 
if you buy and sell something, if you buy a cup of coffee, you pay a sales tax. If you sell a mansion, maybe you should pay a higher sales tax, right? It had the effect of pushing the tax away from 57th Street, Park Avenue, Hudson Yards, where all the global rich are, out into the neighborhoods, right? I cannot you know, say that someone that buys a 3 or $5 million brownstone is hurting for money, but Ken Griffin... You know, it was it, it was meaningless to him, right? So we got a mansion tax instead of Pieta Terre tax. That's the kind of thing. Like, it sounds like the same thing. Well, you know, it's it, it is and it isn't, right? It is a uh, broader base, and it is a smaller amount of money. I think we're going to get the Pieta Terre tax next year. I just think it's such a you know br- no brainer to most people. We'll build a campaign around it. We did not get the ultra millionaires tax. Right, we did not get that high income PIT. They have it in Jersey, right? Cuomo said, "Oh my God, all the people are going to run away from New York." Right? It's the, not going to happen. No, you know, we we have our friends and allies, as I mentioned, the patriotic millionaires, a bunch of millionaires that are like, "We're for higher taxes on millionaires." That's like, great. we need good things for Who, everybody. Can to you survive. tell us any of the people that are in that club? Uh, Morris Pearl is one of them. Abigail Disney is one of them, a Disney heiress. She did a very cool video. With Hi, them. I'm Abigail Disney, and I'm part of the one percent. And I am asking New York to tax me more. Now, why would I ask such a thing? Well, I'm a real Disney princess. And I made these magic glasses to show you what life is like in rich New York. In normal New York, our public schools are owed billions of dollars and can't afford music or art classes. But in rich New York, not a problem. That's what private schools are for. Normal New Yorkers have to put up with crumbling subways. But for rich New Yorkers, it's like the subway doesn't even exist. Just take a car or a helicopter. Normal New York has an affordable housing crisis and property taxes that are way too high. But for rich New Yorkers, there's always a great selection of ultra-luxury condos. Well, this is not how it should be. New York should work for all New Yorkers. So how come normal New Yorkers haven't been able to keep up? Well, that's because over the last 40 years, most income growth has come to wealthy New Yorkers like me. New York's tax revenue can't keep pace, so normal New York is falling further and further behind. Well, you know what? We can fix this. For real. No magic this time. We need Albany to pass an ultra-millionaire income tax just for the super-rich who earn more than $5 million per year. But wait, wouldn't ultra-millionaires just leave New York if we tax them more? Turns out that study after study proves that's just a fairy tale. New Yorkers are tougher than that. So There's, please sign uh, our petition. You know, a couple dozen of them in New York. There, I think there are a couple hundred of them nationwide. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly benefited from their support in Albany. But, you know, Cuomo was convinced they'd run away. Academic studies, the premier sociology expert of millionaire tax migration, teaches at Cornell. He says it absolutely doesn't make a difference, right? You stay where you're building a business, where you're getting rich, where you have professional and family ties. And everybody wants to have a presence in New York. Totally. You want okay. to be on the board of the Met or you want to go to the Whitney. Absolutely. You know, you don't want to go to Oklahoma and watch the Thunder, right? You want to be here in New York. You want to be in a great place. Yeah. So what is it really? Cuomo's not a stupid man. He's making a stupid argument. There must be something else that's going on, and you must have thought about this. Well, you know, the third thing we're talking about is money and politics, right? right. It's about the influence of big donors 
It's about the, you know, academic, political science, documented fact that lawmakers pay more attention to their rich constituents than to their working class or poor constituents. Because that's where they get the money from. You know, big donors carry a ton of influence. You know, Cuomo has national aspirations. He's always been part of this kind of Clintonian triangulation crowd, you know, trying to be a moderate, trying to be in the middle. Uh, I would argue that the times have passed him by more than a little that, you know, when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC are the most popular and trusted politicians in the country, that we're in a very different time than we were when Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were the politicians that every Democratic politician... Hey, it's kind of out of step. It's a different time. It really is. And there's different needs, right? If you look at the structure of the economy, the money is all at the top. The wealth is all at the top. The economy's doing great. But not a lot of it is trickling down to regular people. And if you go around the state, it is even worse, right? So there, there, there is upstate, there, half the kids are in severe poverty, right? Yes. There are whole big, you know, pretty big upstate cities that are as poor as the poorest parts of New York City that, you know, have thousands and thousands and thousands of kids in utter poverty. And Governor Cuomo is the mayor of those people. And he's saying that I can't tax New York City billionaires to help poor kids in Rochester and Syracuse have right. a little bit better lives. Right. I, I, I want to talk about uh, uh, advances made in education funding. But I just wanted to, one point I was thinking is this, this term trickle down, yeah. um, which was a Bush idea. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, I was thinking maybe dribble down or, yeah. you know, it's just, no. it's let them eat cake, let, uh, let, <laughs> let, let them eat cake. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or crumbs. Yeah. Crumbs of cake. Yeah. So much of your coalition is made up of teachers union There's the PSC CUNY, United Federation of Teachers, Alliance for Quality Education, NYSUT, right. all, all teachers, yep, college yep. unions. Um, does the 2019 budget get more funding for our public schools for the poorest uh, in our city? Some, but nowhere near enough. You know, and that was part of what we were fighting for, and that was part of why we're contesting it so hard. And I think that was part of the challenge for the newly Democratic Senate is can they really deliver on these things, right? right? What we got for public education, there was an ad, there was a $680 million ad, something like 680 or 618. um, But there was not the increase in foundation aid that we wanted that would have address the historical underfunding of low-income and black and brown communities of color Mm -hmm. students, right? It just so happens that, you know, the $3.5 billion a year we get from a state-level fairness fee on profits earned by hedge fund managers would pay exactly for that, right? You need $3.5 billion a year. If you ask the hedge fund managers to pay the same tax rate that teachers and truck drivers pay, mm-hmm. we could raise that. That's Cuomo crazy. wouldn't do it. Crazy. And here's here's a crazy thing I'll tell you. We 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 developed and put forward legislation to do that, to create a state level fee. We did it in New York first. It's in nine states in the District of Columbia. Cuomo was for it, the assembly was for it, the Senate was for it, and it didn't happen. This is under the Democrats. This year, yeah. yeah this year. This so year. they were in favor of it, but somehow it didn't make it into the budget. So is it something that they just posture? Do they say, I'm in favor, and then in the back Apparently, back rooms, they right? And when you look at the lobbying, when you look at the campaign cash, you find that Blackstone and 
other private equity and hedge funds were lobbying on this bill. They were fighting. They were opposing it, right? So, again, politicians that purport to be progressive are standing up and saying, I'm for this, I'm for those poor kids, I'm for those you know, students of color, but they will not tax literal billionaires to provide the funding to meet those needs, to improve those kids' lives. What an effective argument. I'm for it. I want it. Yes, yes. Vote for me, and then don't yeah, do anything about right. it. And it, it, it doesn't get out there. And then, and then when they run for election again, they say, I was for it. Yeah. I was behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're part of Hedge Clippers. Oh, yeah. Quick on Hedge Clippers. What is that? Uh, hedge Clippers is kind of a muckraking research direct action project. Like, we've written, I think at this point, 66 different papers on how hedge fund private equity managers are destroying the economy, corrupting the government, exploding inequality, hurting families and communities. Um, we very often pile into a subject, do a paper, get some press, and then do direct action protests or other public events. Um, our most recent paper, for example, looked at the hedge funds that were attacking General Motors. And since the company came out of bankruptcy, they've taken $25 billion out of the company. And all of a sudden, GM has to close the plant in Lordstown, Ohio, mm -hmm. and the oh, plant man. in Hamtramck, Michigan. And mm -hmm. a bunch of workers are losing their jobs, not because GM is a horribly run company, but because hedge fund managers like Ken Griffin are taking the money that's needed to invest in high-efficiency electric trucks and stuff that people might want to buy in the future, right? And didn't we bail them out for that reason? Well, that's exactly what we did. So, uh, again, it goes back to this question of the economy where we take government action to do things, and then our hyper-capitalist economy goes back and undoes everything that the people and their elected officials wanted to do, right? So there was a great town hall forum with Bernie Sanders and Charles Kahn and Randy Weingarten, the president of the AFT, uh, a week and a half ago in Lordstown. It's going to be a fighting issue in the Midwest. We do those things. We've done it in New York. We've looked squarely at hedge fund cash that goes to Governor Cuomo and other elected officials. Last night, we were protesting uh, Betsy DeVos outside the Manhattan Institute fundraiser <laughs> where the billionaires threw her a party. And she was met by, you know, 100, 150 angry activists, teachers, rise and resist. It was great. And, you know, she was met squarely. The revolting lesbians caught her behind in the back door where she's trying to get in. And they were, you know... Uh, wait, wait, wait. They're, they're not lesbians who are revolting. They're, they're, they're an activist group called the revolting, revolting lesbians. lesbians. Well, they are activism is ass, a way of revolting. Right? Right, that yeah. wasn't descriptive. No, okay. they are great. Oh, no, they're not revolting. I get it. And it's all on video that Rise and Resist NY, the Twitter handle or the Rise and Resist Facebook page. There's a bunch of video about it. But, you know, John Paulson, the hedge fund manager, is there, right? He lives on East 72nd Street, uh, a, a mansion just east of the park. He's the guy that created artificial securities that he knew was going to collapse so he could bet on them during the foreclosure crisis. Oh, He made wow. all the money. He wasn't in the big short. He was like, two, I don't know whether he paid somebody off, but he made $15 billion for his hedge fund off the housing crisis in one year. In the worst year of the housing crisis, he made $15 billion because he bet against all the stuff. Yeah. He was there last night, and... 
Someone yelled, that's John Paulson. And 150 people started chanting, John Paulson sucks. John Paulson. And he was utterly shook, right? Was he? And he was. He was, He was. oh, my God, they know my name. Oh, my God, yeah. the pitchforks are here, Hello. right? And, you know, that's how they changed the first, in the first Gilded Age. That's how we got from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era was muckrakers, activists, hellraisers. When you become a Thomas Nast cartoon on the front page of the New York Herald, you know, uh, uh, Tribune, and, and everyone in New York knows who you are and how sleazy you are, that's when things begin to change. And I think we're on the brink of that. I don't have a bunch of victories for you in Albany. I have small things. I have a lot more public participation that groups like True Blue and Rise and Resist and others are doing in the resistance era. But I think we're looking, if you look from Occupy to now, where the billionaires can go into their gala fundraiser and be contested. And be recognized. And be recognized yes, and be understood to the damage they're creating to right. society. And we have people like Representative Ocasio-Cortez that are laying out big, bold alternatives. Our society is changing, and we're trying to be a part of that. And it's, been, and it's reported on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're gonna have. So, uh, so NY, let's change. Let's change. And focus True Blue here. is gonna be with us soon. Okay. They're great. Yeah. So let's change focus here, and examine the process and personal experience of influencing the New York State budget. What is it like being in Albany and pushing your coalition's liberal moral budget agenda? What's it like personally? Well, for you, you guys probably should get another round of drinks for this part of it if you want to yeah. talk about the mechanics of like. No, we're really making. looking at how does it affect you. We're looking at yeah. the mechanics too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I would say, honestly, um, Albany is a really, really remarkable place where regular people can make a difference. You know, it is, it is, it, it is uh, um, you know, a kind of a big fish in a small pond type circumstance where someone in New York on a street corner can, you know, hold the protest and rail against the system and like their neighbors know about it. You do that in the capital in Albany, there's, you know, 30 full-time reporters paid to cover their beats that will come out and listen to you and put you in the newspapers and on public radio and on television and stuff. You know, the, the media market is concentrated and focused on state government. Um, the lawmakers are there physically. You know, when I worked for Housing Works, we were bringing homeless and formerly homeless people with HIV up to Albany every single week and putting them in front of lawmakers and staff, helping them organize and figure out the levers of power. And that kind of interaction can make a real difference when you're doing it. Um, it can be frustrating, but you can get wins. And you can get large and small and medium wins. And I think if you're looking at that level of it, it's great. The larger mechanics of, you know, three people in a room. It used to always be three men in a room. There's a woman who's one of them now. That's um, good. Andrea Stewart-Cousins is leader of the Senate Democrats, which is fantastic. She's a, a, a very capable and effective leader and has had a, a, a big influence on Albany and is really helping our state a lot. But, you know, the, th the, the two legislative leaders and the governor very much control almost everything that happens up there. Uh, uh, Majority Leader Student Cousins is doing, I, I would say, a you know, a, a significant job of helping her conference have a voice in the process. But ultimately, the place is structured so that the three of them determine almost everything that happens. And the governor has an extraordinary amount of power in budget making. So where are you in this process? Do you talk directly to the legislators? 
How does it work? Do you, how do you bring your influence? Well, me personally, I do a little bit of everything. You know, I've been up there long enough that I have personal relationships. I've worked on the outside and the inside. I know some of the lawmakers because I worked for them. Um, but I think, you know, the most important part of my work is doing things like the public talk that I, you know, that I gave where I help large numbers of people understand and then participate in the process. And Alina right? Larson was yeah, there. No, right? that kind of, the kind of talk where yeah, Alina yeah. heard me and we got together, um, you know, I think that you get one certain kind of thing out of sitting with a lawmaker in Albany and talking to them. You get a whole different thing if you can bring a room full of 60 or 80 or 100 people up to Albany to then go talk to that lawmaker. And, um, you know, the, the power of participation in Albany is such that, you know, if regular people don't get involved, it's going to be the highly paid lobbyists. There's a lot of people that get paid a lot of money to go up there and say, this is what should happen, this is what should happen. You're not a lobbyist. I am a lobbyist. I'm a registered lobbyist. I've been a registered lobbyist since 1996. See, I told you so. Okay, I have right. to file. I comply, comply with the laws. And, like, you know, if you, uh, if you, you know, spend... I don't think it's over $5,000. Like if we rent some buses, if we pay salaries for me and Charles, you know, you, you register as a lobbyist. I register as a lobbyist from housing works. I was working for homeless people with AIDS, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, there are different kinds of lobbyists. There are lobbyists, you know, with huge bankrolls. There are lobbyists that go to fundraisers every night and write big checks every night, right? I've never been one of those kinds of lobbyists. Uh, I... Uh, you know, have always worked with, uh, you know, low-income people, working people, people with disabilities, you know, folks that need the system to work for them to have a decent life. And, um, you know, I, I think that's an important part. There are other people that do that in Albany, but the more regular people that participate, the better. And that's why the blue wave has really made such a difference. You know, folks didn't just say, oh, we got them elected, cool, we're gonna go back to our regular lives. Right. They got in their faces. They harassed them at the subway stops, right? They came to Albany. and Participatory the, democracy. The, the, the capital P, you know? And I will say that the Blue Wave folks took on conventional politics, right? Governor Cuomo said the IDC fake Democrats, you know, should get along with the regular Democrats and we'll have a you know, peace treaty and, we'll and everything out. will be fine, right? And... What happened was people said, no, no, we don't want that. We want actual Democrats. We want actual Liberal progressive Democrats. politics, right? And they put it in their hands, and they canvassed, and they organized, and they beat the system, and they got good people there, right? Julia Salazar, 28-year-old state senator from Bushwick and South Williamsburg, Democratic socialist, right? She beat the DeLon machine because the movement behind her was so organized and knocked on so many doors and convinced tenants and parents and working people in those communities right. that they could have a state senator that really looked out for them instead of just one that came around every couple of years asking for their vote. And so that kind of organizing, that kind of democracy, that kind of politics makes a difference. So when those people came to Albany to say, here's the New York People's platform, the senators flocked to them. 
the assembly members flocked him. It was not hard. They were Here, like, here's wait, the votes. how are we going to fit all these senators and assembly members into this wow. press conference? They all want to be here, right? So you create that kind of power not out of the huge piles of money you have building skyscrapers for the international global rich, right? That's what Rebney has. If you want laws that protect tenants and bring back, you know, decontrolled and get rid of MCIs and get people like affordable rents and stuff like that, right? You have to have participation from those people. You have to get them in the system, electing people, unelecting people, and being recognized as the source of actual power they are. Being awake and being there and letting, letting the elected knows that you're watching them. This is Bar Crawl Radio. Becky and I are talking with Michael Kink of Strong Economy for All Coalition. They recently were in Albany trying to convince state lawmakers to adopt a moral budget that supports the needs of the most vulnerable New Yorkers. Um, we just have a couple more questions here. Um, when, when you go and speak, with the legislators, I'm, you go into their offices, you, you you talk to them. I'm wondering what kind of approach do you use? Is it a logical approach? You say, doesn't that make sense, Senator? Is it a substances approach? You say, here are the facts. Here's what what you do. Is it an emotional, moral approach? Political arm twisting, personal and friendly. What approach do you use? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Like, I'm a lawyer, and I, you know, I was a decent lawyer going to court, you know, like, you know, I had my share of wins, but, you know, once I started doing this kind of work, I was like, oh my God, this is so much more fun, because the rules are not as strict, right? If you're going into court, you have the rules of evidence, you have very strict things about what you can say, how you can talk about things. When you're lobbying, when you're doing advocacy, you can talk about anything, right? You can make a you know, dollars and cents appeal, where if you have the numbers that say, homelessness is insane, why are you paying as much for a homeless person as it costs to go to Yale every year when you could put that money into building housing, support services, you could pay off the bonds, you could build the housing, right? Sometimes that works, right? Sometimes it's a moral argument. Sometimes it's, you know, the, you know, the, the rabbi or the imam or the, you know, faith leader that, that is there to say, you know, we are called to do this. This is important for our values. You need to recognize that as a lawmaker, right? Sometimes it's a joke. Sometimes it's a family member, right? I, I was lobbying with Housing Works and, uh, you know, at Housing Works, uh, doing advocacy was like clinically part of the resocialization who had been like street homeless, like living way outside of systems, right? Uh, one, Keith Kyler, one of the founders, was a, a clinical social worker. He was like, advocacy is resocialization. If we have structure, if we have supports, people can feel respect for themselves, for others. They can feel a sense of agency. They can go work. They can do stuff. This guy was lobbying. He was very quiet the first few rounds. The next couple of rounds, he started to come alive. Turns out he was like the son of a really important judge in Brooklyn in the power structure. And once people started to understand who he was and who he was, there was all of a sudden this political power that was there because of, you know, political networks and arm twisting that was awakened out of a dude that was like living in the subway tunnels, you know, wow. right? 
That's what what a story an organization can do to bring someone back and to build political power once they have a sense of speaking for themselves, right? He had the power, he didn't know he had it. Right. And 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 our society didn't know he had it, right? Our society had abandoned him. And once we recognized it and recognized his need and his value, then he could go to Albany and say, this is what we need to help homeless people. This is what we need to create jobs, to create medical care, to build housing. So the state budget's finalized. The lawmakers are now working to make laws. Where does Strong Economy for All go from here? Um, we, in this part of the session, are involved in the housing fight, uh, the, the renewal and strengthening and improvement of our rent laws is really, really important this year. Uh, it is an issue of economic fairness, right? The, the housing laws are one of the most concrete ways that we balance the interests of people with wealth and power, landlords, financiers, the kind of capital class and tenants who are workers, who are regular people. who Like us. Right? So, you know, for many, many years, the rent laws have been weakened, destroyed, exploded, right? Vacancy decontrol, MCIs, rent increases. They, they've been weak, the weakening of, sta of rent stabilization. Totally. The yeah. landlord class has used Albany as their lever and used the Republicans in Albany specifically, bankrolled them, gave them hundreds of millions of dollars. They're not in charge anymore. The Republicans don't control the New York State Senate. The Democrats do. And so getting stronger rent laws will be really, really important. One of the things we're doing, you know, we're involved in tax laws at the state and local and federal level. All these landlords and all these Wall Street folks got massive tax breaks in the Trump tax plan, right? That They got right. the pass-through tax cut. Every mm -hmm. single real estate LLC has a 19% lower federal tax rate than they did enormous, two years ago. Enormous amount. Massive, massive yeah. benefits. So if you're thinking about a time like maybe when you could get rid of MCIs and just let them deal with improving their buildings on their depreciation, right, which they MCIs get anyway. MCIs are major capital improvements right. that a landlord uses to raise rents. Total. Back door, front door, like express elevator way to jack up rents, you know? And, uh, and they're going to charge that to the rent-stabilized renters. Tenants would like to get rid of MCIs. Would say, look, you know, you're you're you own a building, you improve it. That's that's your job it's as a freaking landlord. That's mm -hmm. what you do. And by great. the way, you. you get 25 year depreciation write off a, on your federal taxes for all those improvements. Most yeah. of them are probably we're running. fighting that now in our own total our own building. Right. Yeah. So you know, let's get rid of MCIs. Let's recontrol. Let's get rid of vacancy hey, decontrol and let's recontrol. Right. Let's get more and let's do universal rent control so that we have tenant protection statewide. Right. The, the tenant organizers have built bonds with folks all around the state, in the suburbs in Long Island, Westchester, upstate. I think we're going to be working with them. We're going to help them explain to lawmakers how there's so much Wall Street, private equity, and hedge fund money behind uh, this stuff, how the tax plan benefits landlords and not tenants. Those kinds of things are things we do. We were involved, you know, for many years in the fight for 15 and the minimum wage fights. Uh, the New York minimum wage is up to 15, you know, in steps, but not around the state. We'll work to try to improve that, I think. And we also do work around the country, right? We're working in California. We're working in Illinois. 
we're working on national efforts on private equity and hedge funds, working with the Toys R Us workers that were all screwed last year when that company went out of business, the Sears Kmart workers, you know. So uh, we have a, a hand in, in, in many pies, but uh, we're going to be in Albany till the end of session in June fighting for tenants' rights mainly. So Great. what's the grind like? Are there long days and long nights? It must be exhausting. I don't know. Different things at different times. You know, um, uh, they kick you out of the Capitol now. You know, in the old days, there was no security, and we used to sleep on the couches outside the Senate. You know, wow. the, some of these negotiations happen. When they do budget negotiations or final bill negotiations, they go all night. And I've done that both as an advocate and as a staffer. You have a 11 p.m. negotiating meeting and a 1 p.m. 1 a.m. negotiating meeting and maybe a 2:30 a.m. negotiating meeting, you know. And sometimes you want to be there when they get out of the 2:30 a.m. negotiating meeting to hear what happened to figure out where you're going to get pressure, right? So there are absolutely late nights like that. Um, but you know, the people that are involved in participation, they have long days too, right? Those are Saturdays and Sundays, door knocking or tabling outside the subways and you know, there's all kinds of people putting all kinds of energy into this kind of stuff. And I think everybody has their share of, you know, exhaustion or not. <laughs> right, but there, there's, there, there's the exhaustion part. There's that physical exhaustion yeah. and the day in, day in and day out. But there must also be, and I've heard this, that there's an emotional, pay, uh, you know, payment to be made. Is that, um, I know there must be highs when you win, but when you don't win, it must hurt. Yeah, you know, it's um it's it's um it's ugly and it's disappointing. I think that um I you know, I was asked some of those questions. We were involved in a lot of the uh the resistance work last year and the big fights around Kavanaugh in DC and the mass civil disobedience mm -hmm. uh that happened over and over and over again and um you know, there was a little wave of stories after that and you know, I think particularly having been involved in the AIDS movement when it was a literal life and death thing and understanding how grievous the losses were, but how important even the smallest wins could be right. and how you could build on those. And there was and, great progress made. And how it was necessary <laughs> to keep the movement going, to not be deflated by losses, you know, I, I think... Uh, you have a perspective. It's a perspective that I have, that some of my colleagues and comrades have, you know, having gone through that stuff. I think most people that do this work find their way to something like that, where you can, you know, understand and contextualize. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that this kind of work is not for specialists. I don't have any special, you know, I have my own, like, experiences, but, uh, you know, just like our Housing Works client who went from the subways to being a fantastic uh, lobbyist, like anyone can find their way in and find a way to bring their own particular skills to bear in a way that could really make a difference. So if someone wants to contribute to the work of Strong Economy for All Coalition, what can they do? Uh, I think the simplest way is probably to send us a Facebook message. You know, we're on Facebook uh, slash Strong for All. Uh, you know, shoot us, uh, tweet at us, right, at Strong for All. Charles and I both monitor uh, Facebook and Twitter. And this is Charles Kahn, who was going to be here today but uh, couldn't make it, and he's the organizing Organizing director, director, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, I think, you know, hitting us up on Messenger or tweeting at us, DMing us on Twitter, those kinds of things are very effective. Uh, we are more than happy to help people find their way into participation on all these issues. And if you want to make a difference in society, you've got to jump in. It's, it's not going to get better <laughs> unless we get more people doing it. There you go. We've been speaking with Michael Kink of Strong Economy for All, and we want to just thank you so much. Thank you. And you're listening to Bar Crawl Radio. Today's episode was recorded at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street. They got some great beer. I'm drinking Twin Fork from Calverton, New York. It's a Crescendo IPA, 72% alcohol. Um, always a new supply here of craft beers at Gephardt's. And when you drop in, say you heard about uh, Gephardt's on Bar Crawl Radio, maybe they'll buy us another drink. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Because What's that, it seems quite clear to us that the best yes, conversations, conversations happen have been at, at your, your neighborhood, neighborhood bar. bar. And Michael, thanks a lot for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. That's good. It's easy to talk about. I know. So you've you've you're, you're <laughs> practiced at this. Yeah.